0: 2 John, let's begin with verse 1, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and Love. Well, Father, we pray that you will teach us more of truth in love. And that we will grasp more deeply this concept, and it will not, Father, be for us education, but it will be practicality. It'll be, Lord, how we live. I have been convicted this week and challenged, especially as we've come out of the last letter, Lord, with the issue of love and how love exemplifies Christ in us and how we are to love and what that looks like, Lord. And there is, I confess to you, I have so far to go. And I think many of us feel that way when we stop and think about how is our love life in Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, I ask your Holy Spirit to keep sanctifying, keep working, keep changing keep focusing us, make us like Jesus, pattern us, fashion us, after the character and the nature of the Son of the Father. As your children, Lord, we ask for this by your Holy Spirit and by the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, tonight is Tishri the first On the Jewish calendar, so begins the New Year celebration of Rosh Hashanah which literally means head of the year. And uh, by my calculations, yeah, it's already underway in Israel. It's 7.15 Tel Aviv time right now. And so they're already celebrating Rosh Hashanah, the New Year celebration for the Jewish people. The biblical holiday from which it gets its roots, I think has a better name. Yom Teruah, Day of the Trumpet, or, or Day of the Shout. The word teruah can be shout or trumpet. Numbers 29 verse 1 says, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a yom teruah, a day for blowing trumpets. Psalm 81 verse 1 says, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Strike the timbrel, the sweet sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at new moon, at the full moon, and on our feast day. So, get out your apples dipped in honey. Get a hold of your shofars. Yom Teruah has begun in Israel and runs through Tuesday evening. Through Tuesday evening. It's supposed to be a day of trumpets. So why is it starting here Sunday evening and running through Tuesday evening? Because the trumpet was to be blown specifically at the first sighting of the new moon. Do you know what the new moon looks like? You can't see it. The new moon at the beginning of the month is is a complete blackout. You cannot see the moon. We don't see the new moon. What we see is the first sliver of the new moon. And when the first sliver of the new moon appears, then the priest in Israel was to sound the trumpet, to blow the trumpet for Yom Teruah. Now we have computer programs that tell us exactly when that sliver of new moon, actually when the new moon is supposed to happen. New moon is supposed to happen tonight at 9.01pm Israel time. That's 11.01 this morning. That's when the trumpet should sound, Or at least that's, that's the moment, according to computer calculations, that the new moon happens. So any time after that, the sliver will be seen. And then the trumpet was supposed to sound. But here's the thing. Whether it's today or 2,000 years ago, no one knows the moment of Yom Teruah because the trumpet must sound at the first sighting of the new moon. When's that? Well, it's when they first see it. You could say... When the new moon is waxing crescent, you could also say of that day and hour, no one knows. A year ago when we celebrated this as a fellowship, we had a marvelous time that night just blowing trumpets and annoying neighbors. It was beautiful. What well, we talked about at that time that this idea of the day and the hour that no one knows, well, that's, that's what the Jewish people considered Yom Teruah to be. It was, they didn't know when it was going to happen. They would wait with bated breath until that trumpet sounded. Are you saying what I think you're saying, Rick? All I'm saying is, if the last trumpet were to sound tonight, if the shout were to come this day, If Jesus were to call His church out of the world, would you be ready? Would you be ready tonight? Would you be ready this afternoon? No matter how poorly the Seahawks may be doing? (laughs) Perhaps you've sat in those games and you've said, Lord, just come now because this is brutal. Now today I fully expect the blood of Broncos to be all over the field, but let's not go there right now. Would you be ready? This idea of readiness, and we've come back to it. Some of you say, Rick, you have talked about this for 15 years. I know. Exactly. Precisely. God's Word has talked about it for 2,000 years. Because we are a people who are called to live ready. Ready for Jesus. Are you ready for Jesus? Now, I'm not meaning to freak anybody out. But simply to speak the truth in love that Jesus is coming at a time that you do not think He will. The day and the hour, no one knows. But the Father knows. And that day is fast approaching. So we speak the truth in love. You know, you don't have the one without the other. You really don't have truth without love. And you don't have love without truth. You cannot remove truth from love or love from truth. They go more than hand in hand. They are are one and the same in expression. You've got to have both. And John knows this. And 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are not truly just love letters. They are love letters in truth. You can call them truth letters in love. Now in 1st John, he writes out didactically and, and doctrinally, even theologically... It's a full letter. Though short, he gets into the depth of walking in the light as he is in the light. Of of walking in love. Of what it means to truly love the life who is Jesus Christ. And we've been through that now. We come now to 2nd and 3rd John, and these two little letters are very different. I mean, first of all, if your Bible's open, you note the difference right off the bat, because they each just get a page and you're done. Shorter even than Jude. And these brief little letters come in a different way. They're not like what we call 1 John. These are letters, one to a congregation, which we'll see this morning, and the other one to a congregant. The first 2 John here is sent out to a fellowship. The second one is sent out to a friend. And it's kind of like reading someone else's mail. Like somehow we fell into this. It was left open on the counter in the foyer. With an envelope there addressed to somebody else and you see it and you just can't help yourself. What does this say? What is this about? I love 2nd and 3rd John because these two letters are kind of like being a fly on the wall of learning. You could call them doctrine by observation. Because it's not just, you know, explicit teaching, it's implicit teaching. It's not overt, it's it's covert in a way because we read this letter, we read this love poured out from John to a fellowship, to a friend, and we still learn from it. We still recognize instruction by implication. And that's why I believe they're in the Scriptures. I believe that's why God preserved them for us because in these two marvelous little missives, Jesus Christ is apparent in truth and in love. Truth and love. Well, let's walk this out. Second John, verse one. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. This is still John the apostle. As we talked about with what we call first John. And he may refer to himself as the elder here. He doesn't refer to himself as John, but the language is so similar and and the writing style and what he has to say, this this is John. And and it was observed by others that this was John. I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he refers to himself as the elder and some believe, and I think this is a good guess, that he's doing so in code. That John is writing in code due to the serious persecution that is, was waged against the church at this time. So then rather than alert the authorities that this is from John, oh, track him down, that perhaps John is writing in code, referring himself to the elder, and he writes to the church and gives the church a code name as well. Based on the testimony of several 1st and 2nd century church fathers who I mentioned before, Papias who was of the first century on into the second, and then Irenaeus, they all claim this is John. All three of these letters written by John, John the Apostle, John the Elder, as he refers to himself. And then he writes, I also believe, in code to the chosen lady and her children. The chosen lady, this may be code as well. The Electa Kyria is what he says in the Greek. Electae Kyria. And some suggest perhaps Electe is a name. It reminded me of a Saturday morning cartoon when I was a kid, Electra Woman and Dina Girl. So maybe is, or Electe is her name. That's possible, I guess. Or, or Kyria is her name. And, and both these with, with kind of defining marks. So this could be written to the Lady Eclecta <laughs> or to the Noble Kyria. Something, yeah, that's that's it. It's to a woman and her children. Well, there's a problem with that. See, it's not just a woman and her children. It is to a fellowship, I'm absolutely convinced. Her children could be her own family. I mean, that's possible. could also be a fellowship of believers meeting in her home, if, again, it's the woman. Or what we're really talking about, and this is what I believe after studying this through, that the chosen lady and her children are at church that this is a church fellowship, possibly meeting in a home, possibly meeting just in another town nearby or in a village, but I think it's an affectionate alias for a fellowship. Why? Well, specifically, throughout the letter, though he addresses the lady, he always addresses her in the second person plural, which is to say, you all. So it's a plural form. As to a group in Texas, you'd say all y'all. Okay, which I never understood. I think I've shared that with you before. Y'all, I went to I went to school in Texas for four years, and spending those college years there, I remember learning y'all. I heard y'all from my dad growing up. No big deal. Went to Texas. I assumed that you was you singular, and y'all was you plural. Until my friends started saying, "Hey, all y'all want to get something to eat? <laughs> How many yalls do you need?" So this is what he's saying when he writes and note this in verse five. He says, "Now I asked you, lady." But the you is the second person plural, and you wouldn't do it that way. you you do it in the first person singular. So he's saying, I, I'm asking you, lady, and the lady is all of them, and the lady, again, I believe is this fellowship. In the Hebrew Scriptures, John himself, being a Jew, knows that Israel is often referred to as daughter, as wife, as mother even at times as bride. And by the writing of this letter, these three letters, toward the end of the first century, in the 90s A.D., the church had already been referred to more than once as a bride. Uh, Paul implied this back in the 60s A.D. Uh, Ephesians 5.31, "...for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." He says, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The church married to the Christ. The church being the bride of the Christ. And of course, John had written, Revelation nineteen seven: "...let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready." So for all those reasons, for the way he addresses in the second person plural, and the the Hebrew focus on referring to the Hebrew people in a feminine as in daughter, wife, mother, and the fact that the church was called the bride, all of this put together, you read the chosen lady and her children, and John appears to be writing to this church fellowship. One final proof of that is the way he concludes the letter. If you look all the way down to verse 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. So once again now he's referring in code to his own church fellowship. Perhaps they're in Ephesus. From one church fellowship to another, here are the greetings. So John is probably writing to a local church. If you disagree with me, that's fine. You can be wrong and we can still be in fellowship together. But he's writing to this fellowship and they know John. They love John. How do you know they know him? Well, because of the way he writes to them with affection and love, but also calling himself the elder, they know exactly who the elder is. The elder John. So they know him, and he's writing this letter, again, in truth and in love. Why? There is an implicit warning in all three of these letters against a traveling band of deceptive disciples who John goes so far as to call Antichrist. Keep that in mind because it underlies everything that John is talking about here. "...to the elder, or the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also, note this, also all who know the truth." All who know the truth. Do you know the truth? Do you love the truth? If you love the truth, you must love those who love the truth. If you love the truth, you must love the church. And there isn't an option other than that, though we in our 2,000 years of church history have tried to come up with options, to come up with alternatives I love the truth, but I don't like that guy. And I'm not pointing to you, Gary. I'm pointing over here. (laughs) I love the truth, but I don't like her. No, you can't say that. If you love the truth, you love those who know the truth. Dear fellowship, if you've been here lately, you know. We have been pressed on this point. Perhaps I more than any other because I have to sit here and pour over this that I have been pressed on this issue of love in the church. Love in the church. If John had any message at the end of his life life as we have talked about already it was little children love one another. That trumps everything else. There is nothing that even comes close to the standard of love for God's people. That must be what characterizes us. We cannot say we love the truth and not love the people who love the truth. And I know and I have heard I've been hurt by the church. I've seen too much hypocrisy in the church. I've heard people say the church is too this or the church is not enough that or the church needs more of the other. I've heard the complaints about church I've watched people leave one church to go to another. Kind of like leaving a marriage to go to another like you really think it's going to get better. Perhaps the problem is the one leaving. No offense intended. But we carry our stuff with us, don't we? Well, I'm getting out of there because I don't like the way that... And so I'm going... We have to love those who love the truth. Well, what if I don't like them? He didn't say anything about like. (laughs) Wait, I don't have to like them? That's good. No, no. What's amazing is if you love someone the way God loves us, the like will follow. The like will come along. Sometimes we annoy each other or we get under each other's skin, but the like will come along. People have all kinds of things they will say negatively about the church so as not to go to church and fill in the blanks. I have heard it all. I have seen it all. I have felt it. And I must admit I've caused it in some I, I know that I have been, over the years, I've been the reason why someone has kicked up their heels and left. I don't like that. Never feels good when you recognize that, that truth. But here's the deeper truth. If we love the truth, we must love the people who love the truth. And there is no alternative for us as followers of Jesus. Can we pause just for a dose of reality here for a moment and recognize this that the church is not a single cell organism which means that Daniel and I are not going to be alike in every way it means that Steve and I are going to approach things differently Joel and I are not going to always see eye to eye we are not a single cell organism. We are a multi-cell organism. And it's described beautifully in First Corinthians twelve. And I'll just read this to you. Verses twelve through fourteen. Paul says, For even as the body is one, and yet has Many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And then he underlines, for the body is not one member, it is many. Down in verse 18, he says, Now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. You know, some, I've had this conversation with God. He doesn't give me the choice as to who comes to the bridge. He doesn't ask Rick's opinion. Someone shows up and I'm like, well, Lord, I didn't say this was okay. Well, I'm really not interested in that, Rick. He places the members of the body just as He desires to do it. And then Paul says, if they were all one member, where would the body be? We would be gross. We'd be an amoeba. Single cell. Boring. Boring. Paul says, but now there are many members, but one body. We are multicellular, which means in any church fellowship, anything can and will happen. It means that we're going to do glorious things together, and we're going to do goofball things together. It means that we're going to do divine things and dumb things. We're going to be helpful and hurtful. And oftentimes we don't even intend to be. And even when we intend to, listen, I'm not excusing the harm that happens when people gather in church. What I'm doing is recognizing it. This is what goes on. How does your face feel? when your legs run you into the sliding glass door? Does your face break fellowship with your legs? I will no longer speak to you, nor will I tell you by my brain where to go or what to do, and so your legs are just flailing out there. And does your left thumb break fellowship with your right hand when you smash it with a hammer? That's it, I'm done! No. No. No, one body, many parts, and remarkably when one part of our body hurts, what does the rest of the body do? Hurts with it. When you smash your face in the sliding glass door, and I'm I'm not surprised at how many of you laughed at that. But when you (laughs) when you do that, what do your legs do? They try and get you back up and somewhere where you can see if your nose is still there. One body. Many parts, multicellular, and if we love the Lord, if we love the truth, we must love the Chosen Lady and her sometimes unruly, sometimes bratty children. We must. We must find a way... To love and be sensitive to one another. And why? He continues on in verse 2 and says, For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And he's not talking about head knowledge. The truth is in you. Oh, so we know the right thing to do. That is not what he's saying. Capitalized truth because he's talking about Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth is personalized in Jesus, who said, or who, about whom we're told, grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. John one eighteen. Jesus said, and I quote again and again and again, John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the truth. There's only one way the truth can abide in you and it's not lots of books, it's lots of Jesus. And it's Christ in me that is the truth. And when the truth is in me, I love the truth as as I love Jesus because He is the truth. And then I love the people who love the truth because they have the truth abiding in them as well. On my worst day, when I am the most offensive and the most idiotic toward other people, guess what? The truth still is abiding in me. This is what causes me to learn to give all kinds of grace to people around me because I recognize how much grace I need. But even more, even more, the truth is right here. He stood there before Pilate, John chapter 18 verse 37, and Pilate said, So you are a king, thinking he got him. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king, or literally, you said it. You say that I'm a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world. To testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Talk about the culture of this age versus Jesus Christ. Jesus is truth, our culture says what is truth. Pilate was looking truth in the eyes. No one ever came closer to the truth personified without seeing him for who he was. For who he is. And again, we have two choices in our world. Our culture that is piloted, if you will, By that relative question, what is truth? Truth is what you make it. Truth is what matters to you. Truth is whatever you think. You've got your truth and I've got mine. And we wonder why we can't see eye to eye in our world. Because if your truth is different than my truth and our two truths do not align, neither can we. But there is one truth, one absolute truth, and His name is Jesus and He abides in us and will be with us forever. He says, I am truth. Truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. Man, that changes everything, even in how I read Scripture. When Jesus prayed in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in truth. Your Word, your logos is truth. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word, the logos, became flesh, and your Word is truth. It's Jesus, gang. He is the truth who abides. And you cannot have Jesus, the Word made flesh, abiding in your body without loving His body, which is the church. For all of our you know, flaws that we may have. And so those who love the truth are loving Jesus. And so we love those who love the truth. Just as John is writing, verse 3, grace, mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. And there it is again, truth and love. By the way, this is the only time in the Bible where Jesus is referred to as the Son of the Father. He's called Son of God plenty of times. He's called the only begotten Son, the monogenes in the Greek. This is the only time where it's it's written this way. The Son of the Father is absolutely unique in the Scriptures. Why? Why does John phrase it this way? Because again, he's on the offensive. He is writing to warn against those traveling deceivers, those Antichrist evangelists who are coming. They're making their way throughout Asia Minor. And they are going about doing one particular thing and it is evident in the letters and from history. They were denying the humanity and the deity of Christ. That was the bottom line. For all the other issues that they were throwing out there, that was the big one. That was the one that concerned John. In 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, these people who are coming along with the Antichrist or another Christ spirit, denying the humanity and the deity of Christ who is both Christ and His Son of the Father. So John is already hinting at this, and we'll come back to them more in just a minute. But did you catch his verb tense? Don't miss this. In verse 3 again, he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Will be with us. Well, Paul always began his letters, grace and peace to you. Uh, Peter would write grace and peace be multiplied to you, not to be outdone by Paul. And then John comes along and says grace, mercy, peace will be with us. It's not a greeting as much as an affirmation. It's a promise. Paul used it as a greeting and well he should. Peter used it as a greeting. But John comes along and he says, hey, here's the deal. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He already said the truth is in us, abides in us, and will be, verse 2, with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It's a marvelous promise. Think about this. How many of you have ever said to a child or or maybe a husband or wife or perhaps a friend, how many of you have said, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Better days are coming. That's what John's saying here. Grace will be with us. Mercy will be with us. Peace will be with us. And it's one of those marvelous truths of following Jesus that you know, that you know, that you know regardless of the heartache or pain or difficulty of this day, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Just as the truth is in us. How many of us just need to hear that from time to time? It's going to be okay. In Jesus, it's going to be okay. Yeah, but but I have this diagnosis. It's, It's going to be okay. Yeah, but my family's falling apart. It's going to be okay. Yeah, but I've got people coming against me or I'm hurting here or I'm frustrated or I'm lost. It's going to be okay when the truth is in you. He will be in you forever. And grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. John Man, he would he would cogitate this, collate this all together, this reality more formally in the letter that we just studied. As we go through here, 2 John this morning and 3 John Wednesday night, I think you'll start to get the notion that he wrote these first. That these perhaps were written first because he wants to say more, but he limits himself, but then ultimately he has to say more and he writes 1 John, which is much more of a theological treatise on all that he's talking about. Briefly in these two letters... And he ends First John, remember this, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in Jesus Christ. Now, let's unpack the rest of the letter, and I'm going to give you three points to do it. Three brief points, and the first one is walk in the truth. Walk in the truth, verse 4. I was very glad, John writes, to find some of your children walking in truth. Just as we have received commandment from the Father. Oh, he just derives great joy in this. I think any pastor would. Anyone engaged in church ministry would be thrilled to see other followers, other Christians walking in truth. And John says this. And when he says, I was glad to find some of your children walking in truth, it's not the implication that some aren't. You know, he's not passive-aggressive here. Glad to find some of your kids. We'll talk about the other ones later. No, he's just saying, I was glad to see those who he had had contact with, those John had interacted with, he saw, wow, these people are of the truth. I was talking uh, this last week with someone, and I love it. She and her, her husband and their kids came to the bridge back when we were in the barn. And when she came to the bridge, it happened to be the time, it was on, she knows the day that they came because it was the day of my daughter's wedding, the weekend of Hannah's wedding. So I wasn't here that Sunday. So their first time to visit, I wasn't here. Probably a good thing. <laughs> but then, Cheryl got very sick. And for several weeks of that month, I I wasn't here. We had shepherds filling in, other people filling in. And this was what her comment was this last week. She was so impressed that as she sat there, the Word was being taught. Rick wasn't here, but the Word was being taught. You can almost hear John saying, and I felt the same way, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. It is a thrill to watch other believers just walking out the truth, sharing the Word of God, bringing the Gospel to their friends. And so John says this, I was thrilled about this, and he says, walk in the truth. I mean, by implication, again, this is what makes the old apostle happy. Let's walk in the truth. Now, now John is called the Apostle of Love. Right, and we talked about this that he uses the word love more than any other new testament writer he also uses the word truth more nobody uses truth as much as john uses truth 20 times in the gospel of john he uses the word truth nine times in first john five times here in second john and five more times in third john in all the letters of john truth 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 What about the book of Revelation? I mean, man, if he uses truth that much in the other letters, the book of Revelation has got to have truth all over it. He doesn't use the word once. That's interesting to me. Not a single usage of the Greek word for truth anywhere in the book of Revelation. Why not? Because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ who is the truth. The whole thing is the truth. It's one big, fat revelation of truth in the person of Jesus. You don't even have to use the word because there He is. And we see Him as He is. And I'm excited to get there. The best way, the best way for children to walk together in the truth is to invite Jesus into the relationship. Whether it's a marriage, or a friendship, or family, koinonia in a church fellowship, the best thing we can do is invite Jesus into the relationship. And where we're having wonkiness in relationship, when we're in conflict in relationship, mark these words, if you invite Jesus into the conflict, you will have peace. If you invite Jesus into the relationship... He is the one who brings truth. Who, who brings, well, if you have truth, then he brings love. Because with Jesus, you don't just get truth, you get grace and truth, you get love and truth. Both arrive if you invite Jesus into the relationship. The reason why relationships fail, whether it's in marriage or, or in friendships or in church fellowships, it fails when we fail to invite Jesus into the situation. That's vital. And it is life-changing. Love and truth. We need both. And where Christ is welcome, we have both. Love and truth. Without love, again, you don't have truth. And without truth, you don't have love. And I think we get that practically in our relationships. If either one of them go AWOL, we're in trouble. If I lose truth and begin to deceive or lie to my spouse... Love goes out the window. If I'm harsh and cold and unloving, it doesn't matter how certain I am of the truth, the relationship begins to die as well. And truth goes out the window. Because you can't love without the truth, and you can't offer the truth or live in the truth without the love. And John describes this in 1 John 1.7 as if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, that is honestly, genuinely, authentically, we have fellowship with one another. That's love. Koinonia. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So that's the key. Love and truth. Jesus in relationship. And note here that John ties truth to receiving commandment from the Father. Just as we have received commandment. I didn't even say the commandment or the commandments. He says as we have received commandment. So in other words, as God has commanded us to walk in the truth. Well, how has God commanded us to walk in the truth? in love in love it's always been the father's command through the son for the children that we walk in love and that is the truth and John says we've heard it from the beginning verse 5 now I ask you lady not as though I ask you plural lady singular how does that work it's a church I ask you, lady, not as though writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. Here it is. That we walk according to His commandments. And this is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. What's the commandment? Love. Love. We see it in the Ten Commandments. You realize that reading just through the Decalogue, The Ten Commandments, the first half teaches you how to love God. The second half teaches you how to love your neighbor as yourself. Which is why Jesus says the first commandment is love God. And the second great commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because that's what the Ten Commandments teaches us to do, to love. John 13.34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, or a fresh commandment, That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Which means when Jesus was hanging on the cross, loving me, He did it even in those moments when I was being a jerk. Even when I was being a brat. Even when I was being a rebellious child. Jesus' love was huge. I don't think we can love too much if we love in truth. And I don't think we can be too deeply entrenched in the truth, if we do so with love. Jesus said in John fourteen, fifteen, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just what happens. John fifteen, thirteen, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. If you love the truth, again, you gotta love those who love the truth. That's the commandment. And this commandment, he says twice here in verses 5 and 6, was from the beginning. What does that mean? It means it doesn't change. It's the same commandment it's always been. You may have heard in life, I've heard this phrase, heard it applauded, people think this is really you know pithy and intelligent. The only constant in life is change. No, it's not true. God never changes. God's love never changes. God's word of truth never changes. These have been constant from the beginning. So this is not a new command. It goes back to Jesus. It precedes Jesus coming in the flesh all the way back to his spirit, confirming it through Moses in the Ten Commandments. It goes further back than that. It has always been with us. The love of God to, to the, the command of God to love. That is the calling, and it doesn't change. So to walk in truth is to walk in love. To walk in love is to walk in truth. Are we getting the point? Because I keep needing to hear this. Love and truth, man. Truth and love, ladies. Ephesians 4.15, Paul said, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the Head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. When we drop in love, we are in trouble. We're speaking the truth. Because that's the way it is. Not without love. Without love, we're going the opposite direction. 1 Peter 1.22, Peter writes, "...since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart." Because truth is going to lead into love if it truly is the truth of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.18, he said, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Let our love be real. Now, aside from the obvious benefits, why does this matter so much to John in this letter? Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and... The Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Second thing to note here, not only walk in truth, but watch out for deception. Watch out for deception. John is warning in this letter, they're coming. He warned in first John, they're out there. They're walking. 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Or First John 4, 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And John is warning about those who have gone out, meaning, get this, meaning they once were of us. They went out from here, John says. They were in fellowship. They knew about Jesus. They were walking with us for a season until they went out, and then we knew they really weren't of us. Deception in the church. Tears among the wheat. God said this would be. Watch out for deception. I will tell you this, the only way to not be duped That is, in following Jesus, the only way to be clear in both head and in heart is to know the One who is truth and love. Which is why we spend so much time coming right back to Jesus. The more we are focused on Jesus, the less we're going to be deceived by those who are untruthful. The more we are focused on Jesus, the more we're going to love even those who are unlovable. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Listen, the single greatest deception in and among Christian churches then and today, and today, is the deception that diminishes Jesus Christ. And it's still all over the church. The deception that diminishes Jesus, makes him anything less than who He really is. Verse 9, Anyone, John says, who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has, note this, both the Father and the Son. John knew and stated, In his Gospel, in his letters, and magnificently in the Revelation, he stated the humanity and the deity, the divinity of Jesus who is Christ. Get that. Even in the name, inherent in the name Jesus Christ is the divinity of Jesus. You can almost break it down that way. Jesus, a very human name, speaking of his humanity, even as a human being, Through whom God would save, because Jesus means God saved. Christ, Christos, Mashiach, Messiah, Anointed One. This is God. And when you go through the Hebrew Scriptures and you study Mashiach, Mashiach is God. There is one Savior, he says in Isaiah, and I am Him. Just me. There is one God and Savior. One Mashiach. One Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. Jesus, God. So even inherent in His name, you have humanity and deity hand in hand together beautifully. And in all truth, what John is saying is if you do not acknowledge this, you don't know Jesus for who He is. There are all kinds of other Jesus ideas out there or presentations out there. Those who would go too far know that. He says anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is the Antichrist spirit. How so? Because, as I said, the spirit of Antichrist always tries to give another version of Christ. Ultimately, the Antichrist, who we'll study when we get into Revelation, in depth, and he's a frightening character, but the Antichrist will present himself as the Savior of the world. Will present himself as, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. It's me. You know, the Antichrist, the other Christ. That's what he does. And it's what the spirit of Antichrist has done down through the ages, present another version of Jesus. That phrase, goes too far, is literally to get out ahead. Or to go beyond. Revelation 22.18, John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. You know of those who have gone too far, who have gone out ahead, who have gone beyond the message of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Further revelations. Muhammad did it. A new revelation. Joseph Smith did it. A further revelation. To understand who Jesus really is, and by the way, Joseph Smith in so doing presents a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's another Jesus. A different Jesus. He's gone too far. And that's why I say this deception has been in the church and in the world for 2,000 years. People trying to present an alternative Christ. And we had it happen here at the bridge many years ago. Interesting. Interesting. Situation freaked me out. <laughs> we hadn't been in a fellowship very long, and a man and his wife rolled into town with fantastic visions. This guy had a story, he could weave a tale. We all gathered in a living room because he wanted to share with us, and he wanted to do it on a Sunday morning. I said, Well, let, let me meet, let me get to know you here, find out something about you. My hackles were up. I didn't even know I had hackles, but they were up. And so we're there in the living room, and he begins, begins to weave this vision, this dream. And I kid you not, two hours, he's talking. His wife's there. He's got this young protege who's taking notes and, and writing this vision out. And it's this fantastic vision. And, and just when I start to feel like, man, this is just this is too far. This is too weird. Well, then suddenly he starts talking about how I'm part of the vision. And and I saw you, Pastor Rick. And you were there, and you were there. And he's speaking in these really flattering terms. And I'm going, well, that's cool, I'm part of the vision. (laughs) And he ropes Les into it. Oh, and Les, I saw you there, and the two of you came alongside me and began to help me, and off you went. Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. And there were bizarre things that he shared. And I will never forget watching the story unravel. And as it unraveled before my very eyes that night, I realized one thing, and one thing that was absolutely clear. Jesus was never named. He was never mentioned. He was not part of it. And I walked away that evening realizing those hackles were discernment. And that I had a responsibility to discern the truth in love and love in the truth and the truth is Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know who said that? Peter and John. So early on, John knew Jesus was it. He is the hope of salvation. He is the love and he is the truth. And here's John six decades later. (laughs) Paul McCartney just dropped a new album. Just came out. It's called Egypt Station, which I find interesting because Egypt is a picture of the world. Anyway, I read a review on this where the reviewer said, who do you know in the music business was writing hits in 1958 and in 2018? The list is very short. One man, Paul McCartney. He's the only one alive today who was writing that far back. Wow. That's impressive, I guess. Six decades after John and Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and said there is no other name by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus, 60 years later, here the old apostle in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. Nothing had changed. At least in terms of the truth. The only thing that had changed in John is that as he grasped the truth, the love got bigger and bigger and bigger until he couldn't even hardly see the difference between love and truth. This is all so serious that John, number three, third point, he tells the lady, welcome not the deceiver. Welcome not the deceiver. Is there someone who is not welcome in the church? Is there someone that we need to close the door against? And John says, absolutely. Speaking again to this little church fellowship, in verse 10, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. What teaching is he talking about? Let's be clear. Verse 9, the teaching of Christ. That's the teaching. That's our message. It hadn't changed for 2,000 years. There's no reason for us to go changing it today. It is the teaching of Christ. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, and watch this verse 11, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. To this day, I can't tell you how close we came to participating in evil deeds on that night so many years ago. I'm so thankful that Jesus made Himself known. Welcome not the deceiver. Does that mean I slam the door in the face of the well-dressed, white-shirted Mormon? Do I slam the door in the face of a soft-spoken, ankle-skirted Jehovah's Witness? Listen, this is important to understand. Middle Eastern hospitality is was far more intense than our hospitality tends to be today. At least in terms of how we look at it. Hospitality in the Middle East changed a stranger to a guest. So a stranger would come into town and if he was received, if she was received into a home, that home not only provided protection and provision, but covering even agreement and alignment, if you had someone come into your home and you were hospitable to them, you received them to yourself, you were saying, this person's alright. I'm with this person. We're mano y mano. You know, we're, we're hanging together. What he says, I support. He represents what, what I think. When you travel, that's why in the first century you had to carry letters of recommendation. So, you could come into a town and the community you came from gave you letters that then you could present and people would say, okay, this guy's all right. He's with them and we know them. Hospitality. John is saying, don't welcome the deceiver. Because to receive into your house was to offer koinonia, fellowship. You open the door, hey, come on in. Let's have some tea and biscuits. And you have just entered into and received that person in a spiritual sense. under your own covering and protection. By the way, I, I, I'll just side note, 3rd John, probably a, a letter of recommendation. That's probably what it is, is he's writing to his friend Gaius. He's recommending another friend named Demetrius. We'll talk about that Wednesday. But a letter of recommendation to receive in hospitality. Here's the thing, to embrace, to share whatever the person represented. That's what you did when you invited them into your home, acknowledging Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh is the single test of koinonia. Does the person acknowledge Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christ, as coming in flesh? Do they acknowledge the one true Jesus as presented in Scripture? If they do, receive them into your home. If they don't, welcome not the deceiver. And I'm not just talking about those who come a-knocking. Someone says, well but they're gamers, and I'm a gamer. I know their, their, their theology is weird, but our kids are in sports together. So that's why we hang out. Oh, they're, they're such nice people. Yes, their theology is bogus, I know that, but we have so much in common. Listen, do you have Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh in common with those you receive? This is what John's talking about. I'm not making... this not look at me. Some of you are going... That sounds pretty inhospitable, Rick. Talk to John. He's the one who wrote it. (laughs) Jesus is the measure of fellowship. Now, let me give you one clarification. John is talking to a church fellowship about those who had gone out from among them and were bringing the deception of Antichrist. John is not saying reject the sinner. He's saying reject those who claim to be Christians, but reject the doctrine of the Christ. You see, the world. This, is, this would totally blow the world away if they understood this is what we thought. You're a sinner? Come on in. You're messed up? We love you. You've got serious sin issues in your life and you don't know who God is? Come on in. Let's have dinner. Let's break bread together so we can share Jesus with you. You claim to be a Christian and you don't abide by the, the reality of Jesus, who He is? You're teaching some false doctrine? You are not welcome in this church or in my home. That's what John is saying. The standard, the test of fellowship is who Jesus is Himself. And so he finishes the letter, though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Did John ever meet up with her? The chosen lady and her kids? We don't know. Perhaps. We do know that John ultimately put ink to paper about many things, all written in first John. And that's why again we think second and third may have come prior to first. It doesn't matter if you disagree, that's not the doctrine of Christ. Just agree with what's in the letters. But he writes this. He clearly declares in 1 John the doctrine of Christ in truth and love. If you're uncertain of the doctrine of Christ, go back to 1 John and pour over it until you know. Because He is true God and He is eternal life. And what John shares with the lady and her children is to walk in the truth. To watch out for deception. Even to welcome not the deceiver. And I will leave you with one last thought this morning. Watch out for the coming Christ. Did you catch what he said? Look at verse 7 one more time. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. And this may actually indicate the second coming of Jesus. The verb tense, the way it's written. It's not just right, he doesn't say those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ came in the flesh, which he says in 1 John. He says Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Part of the doctrine of Christ is knowing that He's going to come back. It's knowing that when He resurrected, do you know this? He resurrected in the flesh. Full bodily resurrection, which is why Jesus is the only begotten Son, the monogenes, because there's no one like Him in all history. Jesus is the only one, not in history, in eternity, He's the only one, fully God and fully man, and still is. In His resurrection... It was full bodily resurrection. He, he resurrected in the way that we will be. We're going to have these bodies, oh, not like they are now, glorified, marvelous. No one's going to look in a mirror and go, <laughs> I don't even think there will be mirrors in heaven. We'll just be basking in the glory of Jesus. But the Bible tells us, Behold, Revelation 1.7, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. So you can be on the earth mourning His coming, driven to your knees in fear and trepidation, or you can be riding behind Him as He comes back. Revelation 19, I don't have time for that this morning. But when He comes... Just like John says, Dear Lady, I hope to come to you and speak face to face. When Jesus comes, we will see Him face to face. If the last trumpet were to sound tonight, if the shout were to come, if Jesus were to call His people home, would you be ready to see Him in truth and in love face to face? Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we pray as the people of Jesus Christ. We recognize the very clear doctrine of Jesus who is both God and man. The doctrine of Messiah who came, lived in this world, died on the cross as both high priest and lamb, as the offerer and the sacrifice. We declare Jesus who rose from the dead and ever lives even now making intercession for all the saints, His children. We pray and we bow before You, Lord Jesus, this morning and again here in our fellowship, we declare You are God and Savior. And we love You. And we need Your help to love each other better. We believe You, but we need Your Spirit to know Your truth more clearly. My prayer this morning for our fellowship is simply that, love and truth in Jesus. Father, I thank You for what You have poured out. I pray You will continue to pour out until until Jesus calls us. And Lord, I'm of a mind, I would love for it to be today. But may we all be ready in love and in truth, in Jesus' name, Amen.